right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today, I'm deeply honored to be joined by Shauna Nequis. How are you today, Shauna? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. It's good to see you. I think this is the third time we've done a podcast together. I think so, but it's been a long time. It, it really has. I feel like maybe since the last time you wrote a book, I assume that's probably the last time we talked. <laughs> Which was a long time ago. When yeah. did the last one come out? 2016. Was it really 2016? Well, that's that's long. And now you're living in New York. What, what like like borough thing are you uh, in? I feel like I'm saying that wrong. Of Manhattan. Live right downtown in okay. Chelsea, which is sort of in the middle ish, and we just absolutely love it. Okay, and uh, like you and like Jonathan Merritt also lives at the same seminary, right? It's true, and uh, several other of our best friends. It is like a like a real dream scenario. It's super fun. Mm-hmm. I felt like I got together with Jonathan in New York a couple of years ago or not too long ago or whenever. And I was down in that area. I don't know anything about New York. It makes me uncomfortable. There's too many people. Like I feel claustrophobic very easily. And so like the New York thing is just, I loved like visiting is great for a couple of days, but for me, just the way I'm wired, like I feel like I'm wearing a sweater that's like two sizes too small with so many people around me. Do you just like, it sounds like you find life in like the energy and how everything's so connected Right. I really do. I really, really love it. It feels energizing and uh, inspiring. And the other thing I would say is when you travel somewhere just for a couple days, you're sort of like packing everything in. You're not in your home. You're like maybe in a hotel or somebody else's house. And there's a yeah. certain amount of like stress that goes along with that. Once you live here, like we don't go to Times Square every day. We don't like we can kind of make things as calm and quiet as we need for them to be. Um, whereas mm-hmm. when you come in just for a couple days, it's sort of like extremely overwhelming and chaotic. Our life here isn't really like that. It can be, but it isn't always. Mm-hmm. I feel like I sound like the old like salsa commercial where the Texan sees like this picante sauce and it says, oh, this is from New York City. <laughs> like, I feel like that's kind of the vibe I'm putting off right now. And I don't mean to do that. Uh, I'm just... When I was there, like I found myself every morning just like rushing to uh, Central Park, just because I felt like I could like stretch out. Um, but like that's beautiful. Like the park system there is is amazing. I, I assume you just start to gravitate to different places that speak to you and connect to you in ways that yeah. Oh, absolutely. And we live um, just a couple blocks from the Hudson River. So like when I take a walk with a friend, it's always straight to the river. And so you're, there's it. Once you get out onto the West side highway and onto the river, you get that sense of like expansiveness and big sky and water. And so, you know, it's not like, like all like the concrete jungle. We don't really live in that part of Manhattan. Okay. Fair enough. But, uh, so there's a phrase that you have in the book. So you were seeing, um, Oh, I forget that. Like Annie Downs is like BFFs with the people who were in, is it Wicked? Is in that the Wicked, play yes. you reference in the book? Yes. And, and so she signs something and the signature or the, the phrase is like a common New York thing, which is welcome home, which I'm like, I, I don't get it. What, what is the thing about New York and the welcome home thing? Oh, I didn't get it either. But so um, Amanda Jane Cooper, who was the lead in Wicked, signed this photograph for us and it said, welcome home, Nequists. And then... We would run into people over and over around the city or we'd go to events and people would say, welcome home. And finally, I asked one of our neighbors about it, Michael, who's been in New York for like 10 years or something. And I was like, is this a thing? And he was like, oh, it's totally a thing. Um, 
people love living in New York and they claim everyone as a like, welcome home. Now you're home. Now you're one of us. Um, and one of the funny things is nobody cares where you've been. No one's like, oh, you're from the Midwest. Tell me about that. They're like, oh, you're from the Midwest, but you're here now. Welcome home. It's like a very strong sense of like, this is a magnet and it's eventually going to get everybody and it got you, you know? Hmm. Okay. So the Texas equivalent is I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. Exactly. It's the same sort. It feels like the same, the same kind of energy. Like we think this is the best place and everyone wants to be here as quick as they can. So New York has the same. Absolutely. Like good for you. You I don't want to say like, but it's like Chicago is like a big city, but I've visited a few times, but like the feel of Chicago, everyone says that like, it's a big town, but it's really like Midwest. And it feels smaller than it is. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Um, so one of the things when we move here, people say, oh, where are you from? We say, oh, we're from Chicago. They're like, oh, so you get it. And I'm like, number one, no, we lived in the suburbs of Chicago, which is totally different than living downtown. And number two, New York and Chicago are completely different vibes, totally different energy. And you're exactly right. Like, I think the Midwesternness of Chicago kind of overrides its cityness. And New York does not have that. Like it it is, uh, it doesn't even feel particularly connected to like the rest of the geography. It's like its own global universe with people from everywhere. And I would say the, yeah, the things that it has in common with Chicago are zero. I feel (laughs) zero, zero. Which pizza do you like better? Chicago, New York? This is controversial. I have always been a thin crust pizza person. So I'm a New York pizza person. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't feel like that's controversial. That is definitely the right answer, uh, 100%. <laughs> don't tell and, Chicago. Yeah, but like it's, but we know, like everyone knows, like my favorite Austin pizza place is a New York place. People came from New York, set it up in Austin. And is that's it Home Slice? One, Shauna, yes, that is our place. I love You've it. You've been there. I love it so much. Yeah, I went to Austin for a weekend with one of my best friends, She's in California. We met in Austin and we had, I want to say our first meal off the plane at home slice. And then we went every day. Like we canceled reservations at other places just to go back to home slice. God bless you. Like home slices. Like I have a whole like folder of pictures of just me and my family at home slice. We go there all the time. It is, uh, you talk about like, you have a story about like a burger place that opens in New York that was originally in Chicago. It has like, runny egg on it or something and some like you you love food in a way that i wish one day i could get like maybe one third of the way there anyway so you described it sounds amazing um but like that's home slice for me it's like that's this will always be like a special thing for my family i totally get that and you know i think senses um uh senses connect us to our memories right so whether it's taste or smell or sound or texture the things we touch and feel and taste connect us to some of the most deepest like memories and longings and feelings in our lives. And so I think that's why food and those food experiences matter so much. Yeah. So you lost uh, your smell. Is that right? I did. From COVID? I did for six months. Mine was gone. I I didn't realize what it was, but it was gone roughly the same time, maybe even like nine months. Like I I thought it was just allergies. And then I went to Florida. I was like, I still have allergies. Like, I I don't know what's going on. Okay. But when I first, my my wife was working as a neonatal ICU nurse. She comes home from the hospital Thanksgiving of, 
you know, a year and a half ago, this is way before the vaccine. Uh, she has some symptoms of it. She tests, she assumes she has it. And so I think, oh my goodness, I'm going to get this because she came home from the hospital with it. It's a matter of time. So I went out and I got my favorite donuts, ate them all because I thought this is going to be like my last meal with taste. When you found out that you were losing your smell or your, your taste, you obviously are a huge foodie, is foodie, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, were you terrified because of how much food is uh, central to the way you experience the joy of life? Well, that's, that's a great question. I didn't have, I was not as forward thinking as you were. So I didn't like, <laughs> it was, it was like one of those real, like, uh, I didn't know, I didn't have enough notice ahead of time to make a good plan okay. for what was about to happen to me. But what I realized is that the way I realized I had no sense of smell was because I kept burning food. Like everything I made, I burned because I, you know, things are done by how they smell. Like even just like the toaster, right? Like I put things in the toaster, I walk away and pretty soon the smoke mm-hmm. alarm's going off because I can't smell the doneness of whatever it is I'm toasting. Or I put things on the stove and just, I'm used to the smell yes. reminding yeah. me. So for like a couple solid weeks, I just like threw away, like burned things to absolute char and then had to throw them away. The one thing I did notice though, and I think you have daughters, so it's not the same, but yeah. Um, yeah. when I realized that my sense of smell was coming back, um, it's because I realized how terrible our apartment smells sometimes because it's full of boys. No, that, that's, that's when I really know, cause I, uh, I, I trained jujitsu and that's a sport in which you're very close to sweaty people. And, uh, during like no smell, like it was pretty great. Like, uh, and it's back, like my smell is back now. And that's not always a good thing in that setting. If I, had, I like understand. boys, yeah, yeah, that's. I literally was at a cheer competition two weeks ago, and I texted one of my buddies, sent a picture, and there's like literally thousands of uh, of young athletes there. And one of my friends is like, "Oh, and he has boys." He's like, "Oh, that that sounds awful. The squealing alone would kill me." I go, "Yeah, but it smells better than your boys." And he goes, "That's such a seven reframe." I'm like, "No, that's just logic right there." Oh, that's a hundred percent true, and that's that's really the trade off, as I understand it. Girls, uh, the squealing is a real thing, but boys smell terrible. I think that's sort of the big trade off. Yeah, no, I think that's just written somewhere in a contract with the universe. My girls don't squeal a ton, and I'm thankful for that, and they don't smell bad. So anyway, they're, they're like a good dog, like hypoallergenic and uh, doesn't shed. So our dogs are just like our kids. Anyway, um, okay, we, I, I really wanted to talk to you for a long time about COVID, and I feel like we got that out of the way. That was one of the main things that I wanted to discuss with you. And so luckily, we, we got that out of the way, first of all. Um, so you... You have a new book, the, the titles. I guess I haven't learned that yet. And one of the things that I've sensed from your writing for years is that you have a great deal of vulnerability, which I think connects to us as your readers in a way that makes us feel like we know you and you're very confessional and honest. And this last couple of years has been really hard for a lot of us. And obviously, you, you have been through a lot. Obviously, the move uh, is a big deal as well. And I think my question going into reading this was like, is she going to have the same level level of vulnerability writing this book after like a, a rough couple of years? Did you find yourself having to like filter your vulnerability different this time? Well, I mean, I, I feel like I want you to answer that question. Did I do it? Did I have the same amount of vulnerability? <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't feel like the vibe came off different. It didn't feel that way different to me. Did you, did you feel like, like it was the same, same game plan going into it? No, um, it felt really different. It, um, 
And I actually, I struggled with this book more than any other creative project I've ever worked on. I tried to walk away from it several times. Um, I threatened to throw my laptop in the Hudson River roughly once a month for like three years. Um, <laughs> and Aaron was like, don't just, we can, we can talk about this. Don't do it. Just not your, not your Apple computer, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was a hard thing to figure out, you know, there vulnerability vulnerability is a really important word in our culture right now for a lot of really important reasons. And also public vulnerability is a different thing than the way we share with the people with whom we've built trust-based relationships. Right. And there are appropriate levels of transparency for different situations and different people. And this one was a really hard one to figure out both because so many other people had strong feelings about my experience and because I had such strong feelings about my experiences. And so um, I really think conservatively, I probably wrote 300,000 words. Um, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. I could have filled six or seven books with the amount of words that I wrote for this book. And it was interesting when you talk about like losing your sense of smell, I got to a point where I said to my editor, um, I can't tell what's working anymore. I, I, in the past, have, been, have had pretty decent instincts about my own work. I can tell mm -hmm. when a particular essay or a particular topic or whatever, when it's going to work or not. And this one, I was like, I honestly, it's the same way that I can't smell. I can't feel this. I can't sense if this is good or not, if this is appropriate or not, if this is helpful or not, if it makes sense or not. And so for the first time ever, I sent my team about 75,000 words and said, I literally won't be offended if you say start over. If you find 1,500 words you want to keep, like, I can't tell what this whole mess is. So that's a long answer. But um, this well, was a totally why different do you process think for me. I assume it's not COVID related. Why do you feel like you lost your sense of like, if this is working or not? I think some of the hard things that I walked through the last couple of years um, caused me to doubt almost everything in the world, especially myself. Um, I look at the world really differently now. I look at my own life and story really differently. And I lost confidence in a really significant way. Um, I, I very seriously considered um, ending my kind of public life completely. I just thought, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I can barely get through this. I can't get through it in public. And so... It's like when you are body surfing and you get tumbled and sometimes you, you literally you're swimming the wrong direction to try and find which way is up. It was like that yeah, yeah. on a pretty deep level. So losing your confidence felt like you're swimming and you don't know where the surface is. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I've heard people say who actually are in the ocean all the time is that you let a bubble out and you follow where the bubble goes and that tells you where the surface is. So if you're upside down, you're lost in the water, like you have a bubble and that will lead you back to the surface. Like what were things that kind of led you back to like equilibrium, finding your balance, finding your, cause it like in the book, like it sounds like you have a voice that's like, it's beautiful. It's compelling. It's like, it's, it's very thoughtful. Like what were things that help you find that? Thank you. Or do you, well, let me, I'm sorry. Can I, can I reframe the question? Yeah. Do you feel like you found it? I do. Looking back, I do. Um, but I didn't know for quite a long time. Um, I right yeah. until the very, very end of like, within the last couple of weeks of sending off the manuscript, I was still very uncertain about if I would even send it. I had like a freak out 
about, I'm trying to think of the calendar, four weeks before I sent it off, where I called my editor and I said, I, I changed my mind. <laughs> she was like, nope, not again. Um, but uh, this project, more than any other, I have tended to be a writer. Um, like, the act of writing really helps me think and helps me process and helps me understand my life. But um, the essays that I write are pretty well processed after those moments. And this felt really different. This felt like I was writing to make sense of my own self, uh, not for anyone else. Like, down the road, some of it made it into a book, but a lot of it, what saved me, I actually write about this in the book. There's an essay called Magic Desk. And sitting and typing, sitting at this tiny little desk, pressed up against the windows, looking out into the city, is one of the things that helped me figure out which way was up, more so than any other time in my life. Like There were times when I even thought, maybe me being a writer right now is not about the work I produce for anyone else. Maybe it's God's way of helping me find which end is up right now in my own life. Um, And then the other, you know, I would say I have a really, really great therapist and I put a lot of time into um, some pretty significant therapeutic work. Um, And I have really good friends who walked me through a really rough season. And, and the other thing I would say is they walked me through literally. I'm a walker. Like I, I love to walk. I love to walk in the city. That's some of why I love New York. And one of the things my therapist told me early on is that grief is somatic, meaning it exper- it, we experience it not just in our brains or our, yeah. our emotions, but in our bodies. And it has to get walked out or worked out in some way. And I have a couple th- friends who have covered probably legitimately hundreds of miles of this city with me. Sometimes talking, sometimes not, sometimes crying. Um, but we walked this last several years out in, in, in really specific and, and ways I'm really thankful for. That's really good. Yeah, and like you walk out our issues. We walk out the things we're going through. Like there's definitely, um, I think, what is Hillary McBride's book? To, like the wisdom of our bodies. Like there yes. is some like wisdom that that's very tactile. Like it's like, it's not just in our head. Like there's something more that's going on. Uh, I also like the, the idea of like writing, like it's very therapeutic from my experience. Writing is very therapeutic for myself. And uh, we are both Enneagram sevens. And uh, sometimes I can deal with my feelings more when I'm trying to write them out. And I have too many times where like this happened like two weeks ago, Jerry, one of the worship guys that I work with, um, he like knocks on my door, starts to walk in and like, I have my head down and I'm just like, wait, like not now, not now. And like, I'm literally crying as I'm like trying to process something. And there's no way for me to do it as easily as like with my fingers on the keyboard. When you're writing 300,000 words, I assume like there's a lot like there that's going through you. Is that, is that your experience as well? Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, there's something, uh, I'm not great. And this is probably a seven thing. It might just be a me thing. If someone told me to like sit quietly and just like process through my deepest, darkest feelings, like, I would just, I don't know what, like fall asleep, go into some other imaginary zone, like just sitting there thinking about stuff. I'm not great at that. But there were times when I felt like some of the grief and some of the fear and some of the anger was literally like leaving my body through my fingers as I typed. And I just, I just wow. kept showing up over and over again. Like my poor computer's probably like, stop, ew. Leave me alone. Yeah. Right. Huh. Okay. So people who've read your work for a while know like food is like this, uh, very special part of your life. I'm not much of, um, of like a, a chef. Uh, I cook like the same stuff over and over again. 
one of my coworkers thinks that my hands are turning orange because I eat sweet potatoes maybe five to six times a week. Um, and I think that's completely false. But um, my hands are not orange. That's well, my but point. Here, here's what my question. What are the things you cook? You cook, cook sweet potatoes. What else? <sighs> this is going to be... So um, egg whites with an avocado in the morning. I cook uh, uh, ground turkey and make turkey burgers with sweet potatoes. Um, grilled chicken, um, pro- protein shake, and uh, cauliflower I'm gonna, I'm pizza. I'm going to give you half credit for calling making a protein shake cooking, but okay. Well, I eat like it's the same, the same meals, but here's, here's what I've gotten into recently is like Thursday night, uh, Friday, Sabbath. And so I work, you know, Sunday through Thursday, as many pastors do Thursday, like usually like Wednesday, like I'll go to the, um, store Texas. We've got like good grocery stores for, if you want to get steak. And so I'll get a steak on like Wednesday, leave in the fridge, Brian saw all that. And then like, I come home, I'm done working. And then like, I'll cook a steak and eat sweet potatoes. And that's kind of like, I don't know. Like it's a very, it's a real special thing for me. I love that. See, and that's like food and senses and memory and routine all connected. I like that. Okay. Well, I feel like I'm trying to like make, make some connection here. Uh, you distance yourself with me with the protein shake comment, <laughs> but like I'll overlook that. It's a good protein shake. I feel like there's a lot to it. So, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not budging <laughs> on that one. Okay. But I have nothing okay, against well, protein shakes. You know, I just, I don't know that it qualifies as cooking is what I'm saying. It counts as cooking. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, that, you that, that I mean, them. you just can't tell me it you is cooked fair. them. Yeah. Okay. But it seems like you're, I imagine you and Aaron's like culinary experiences. Like you're trying, you have a, a repertoire of like hundreds of things that you're cooking. I, like, I don't imagine you cooking the same thing every week, even though I would wager you probably have something you cook consistently. Oh yeah. We have definite staples, but I like to try new things. But Aaron is just like you. Like, um, Aaron can make, uh, eggs, oatmeal. He's a really good griller and he drinks a lot of protein shakes. So like, that's it. Like that's, if Aaron's cooking, that's, he sounds perfect. Yes. That's what I meant to say is he's perfect. Um, yeah, he sounds great. (laughs) And I, but the other thing about me is I don't use recipes. And so it's almost always some sort of like freestyle make them up. Yeah. Oh, so come on now. I can that never make the exact same thing twice. It's always going to be a little different. But that requires like this great uh, breadth of knowledge about how things work together to be able to freestyle. It's like jazz. Like you learn the rules and then all of a sudden you can just improvise. Is that, is that how you, is that fair to say? I think it is. Yeah. And you know, I've, um, the way I learned was trying recipes with cookbooks or by watching cooking shows and I've taken a fair amount of cooking classes. And so you just have to start uh-huh. with. You're exactly right. Like the scales, the rules, this is, and it's just science. Like this is what's going to happen. And then once you know all that stuff, you get to personalize it and customize it according to kind of your tastes or preferences or whatever. But it's a fun process to learn about. Yeah. There's something about life in there too. Like you you learn some basic rules of life. You do good, good things happen back to you. You do bad things, bad things happen. And then all of a sudden life happens and becomes far more complex than that. But it's like, there's some basic math elements to how life works and then sometimes the math doesn't work. And all of a sudden you're disoriented because, hey, I thought these two flavors together worked really well. And, oh, you know, I'm going to put garlic here and we're going to put some salt and pepper and this is going to turn out great in the end. But then sometimes it's just like, here's a steak metaphor. Like sometimes it's just a bad cut of meat and you can season it and you can do all the right things, but it's, it's never going to be good. And like, I feel like that's life sometimes. Like you do all the right things and no matter how you season it, it just doesn't come out well. This is my first steak metaphor I've used in the podcast. So hopefully it's going well. Well, I'm going to continue it on two levels. Number one, if you buy a bad cut of meat, 
that's when you want to do a braise. That's when you want to apply a lot of liquid and low and slow heat. Okay. So if you buy a steak and you oh, think it's going to be amazing okay. and you're going to put it on your um, grill, but then you realize for every, like, this is not good. Chop it up, red wine, onions, aromatics, 300 degrees, three hours. That's what you're going to do. And it'll be delicious. Wow. Yeah. Well, there's a great life lesson. <laughs> now, sometimes the, the meal doesn't turn out the way I want it to. And I find myself like, oh, this, like, I'm looking forward to this. There's anticipation of how it's going to be. And then it doesn't work out well. And then like, oh man, I'm so frustrated. I have resentment about it. And one of the things I connected to in your book is on a more substantial level with life. Sometimes it goes that way. And uh, like just carrying around anger and resentment. And can I read a quote to the book? or from the book to you. I know it's kind of awkward here. So I'm going to read a quote to you, but uh, for my listeners, here's a line you have from the book. There have been stretches in the last couple of years when I needed a wheelbarrow or even a semi truck to carry around all the anger and resentment I held on to. It was the, one of the core activities of my day, just keeping that anger and resentment alive and sparkling, tending to it like a fire. I think many of us can relate to that where you've had things that just didn't go your way. You're frustrated, you're angry and you just hold on to First of all, can you explain what that does to our soul when we tend to our anger and resentment like a fire? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's such a cliche, but it's so true. It's that um, resentment is uh, drinking rat poison and expecting the other person to die, right? Like it's, you think yeah. that, they, oh, if I hold on to enough anger, I am really going to get this person. Their life is just going to be so terrible because I'm wielding my anger like a weapon. Well, they don't know. It doesn't hurt them. It doesn't affect their life at all. You start to become a person you don't want to be. And that's, I definitely felt that in myself. I've, I felt like I walked up to a couple different edges of um, this way of living is leaving a mark on me and I don't want to be this person anymore. I don't want to be this person in front of my kids. I don't want to give up my capacity for joy or delight or hope. Um, holding on to anger and resentment will shift who you are over time. It will do permanent damage to your insides. And I know it because I've seen glimpses of it in my own self and I take it really seriously because that's not who I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the Beekner line that of the seven deadly sins, like anger feels like the most fun one because it's like a feast. But what you don't realize is that the feast is yourself and you're consuming yourself the more you lean into it. But like, I, I like I hold on to that. And, you know, as a seven, one of my other moves is just like pretend things aren't exactly what they are and to reframe things to the point where it no longer looks like what reality is. And you, you have this line in the book where you talk about spiritual maturity is consenting to reality. And I heard a line years ago, and I don't even know who it said because I've just developed it as my own at this point, but I feel like it's Scott Peck. But um, something about uh, like mental health is avoiding fantasy at all costs mm, yeah. and like dealing with reality as it is. Um, how, how hard has – what makes it so difficult for – especially maybe us sevens, but for all people to deal with reality? And why is it so important to do that when things don't um, – like turn out the way you want them to? That's such a good question. Um, I'm trying to think of why we avoid. Well, I mean, I think we avoid reality because we don't want to face um, what's missing or what's been taken or what we wanted it to be. Or we don't want to have to stand in that terrible chasm between what we wanted and what is, you know, that's the, 
the greatest pain point of most of our lives. This is not how I wanted my story to go. This is not how I want my life to unfold. And I think um, many of us um, have held really tightly to the myth of our own control, right? So there's a part of like when life takes a turn, there's sadness that this is where the turn went. Uh, but there's also yes. sadness that like I wasn't in control. Are you telling me I don't get to define every single part of my life? Um, yeah, that's it. That's- I think we the myth of our own ability to affect to affect our destinies and our every step is pretty prevalent in our culture. Um, there's also all these other funny myths like um, like especially in Christian worlds, uh, like people who have sort of a like kind of hallmarky view of faith. A lot of times it's like, um, but God will never let anything bad happen to you. But wait a minute. If something bad is happening to me, is it because I'm not God's favorite? Is it, did I do something bad? Do I not deserve goodness? Like all that Christian messaging can kind of screw us up when we're in the middle of a lot of loss, because you start to think, is there something wrong with me? Um, is God, did he forget me? Did I do something irreparably terrible? And then you add all of that on to the actual loss you're experiencing. It's really easy to get, like we, the metaphor we've been using, sort of tumbled in all of that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you say in the book is that at some point in your life, you just assumed that uh, it was just life upon life upon life and the way that life just would always go like in a positive trajectory. And so you have this conversation with a, a pastor friend who talks about the Paschal Mystery where life and death are tied together. And like this Christian, Christian rhythm of life is that there is life, but death is also there. How has that helped you process like when life is hard, when things don't go the way you want, when, when there are things that are just categorically bad that have happened? And I think the Paschal Mystery is such a treasure um, that that way of thinking and feeling about life, because what it does is it, um, first of all, it, it's not a surprise then when there's a death of any kind, either the, the death of a dream, the death of a friendship, the death of a particular season or whatever, because you're like, oh, right, that's built into the system, right? It's not like yeah. a crazy aberration. You So you start to befriend and get comfortable with the idea that almost every great thing in your life will end at some point. And that stops becoming like tragic and shocking. It starts becoming sort of the rhythm of how life is. And then if you can get yourself sort of comfortable and oriented around this, I- around this idea that most things last only for a season, then you get the next gift, which is rebirth or new things being born. And that's a pretty beautiful way to think about the world. And you can't have one without the other, right? Like I was trying to do like yeah. only more life, also more life, also more life. Like, um, you know, I'm a, a person who really loves summer. And it's it's like I was saying, like, my four favorite seasons are summer. And then when it turns to more summer, and then when it turns to more summer, like, hey, check nature. That's not how it works, right? Like nature tells us that things will bloom and flourish and die, and then there will be a season of quietness, and then they will bloom and flourish and die. And the closer we can, the more completely we can attune our heart's rhythms to that pattern, the better Mm -hmm. we are at facing the reality of all of our lives, which is one, we're not in control, and two, terrible things happen, and three, lots of times there will be rebirth afterward. Yeah. Yeah. And if you expect the game to have loss and life 
coincide. Like we're, it's not always just going to be life on life. I feel like we're, we're set up better to experience the losses that we do experience. And when we're not expecting it, it seems that what happens is we just focus just on the losses. And I I think Ian Cron introduced me to this idea. I think it's uh, originally from Augustus who talks about how sin curves us in on ourself and sin can make us like very just like narcissistic. And all we see is just ourself. Um, you, You talk about how there's an ability that we can have to actually train our eyes to see goodness all around us and, how, like, how can that help us in times when we found, like, find ourselves turning in on ourselves? I think you're exactly right that sin and pain and loss can turn us all kind of inward. Um, I don't know what's happening. Um, your, your phone's right, but here's the thing: people love you, and just, just we hear that as love. <laughs> I'm going to see that as love, right? But like, do not. That's all it is. Doesn't it work? Why? Why won't it happen? I don't know. Today is like we're all good with it. Every single technological thing that could have gone wrong today has so. I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. Okay. But, but life and death, that's the game we're playing. Like there's going to be podcasts that have to get rescheduled and moved around and there's going to be phones that ring. That's part of the game. It's true. It's true. It's true. Thank you. Um, so you know, I think you have to be, especially in, in seasons where there's a lot of loss and darkness, there's like this idea that if something bad has happened, only bad things are going to happen. Uh, and that you have to stay in the darkness. Like this is my bad season where only bad things happen. And the older I get and the more I learn, the more I realize very few of us get such clear cut seasons. It's almost always a lot of both, right? If we're paying attention, if we're consenting to reality, even the most beautiful, wonderful, delightful seasons have some real challenges within them. And even the darkest seasons have these little tiny bursts of light and beauty. And um, I don't want to miss an opportunity for meaning, connection, celebration, delight, because I wasn't paying attention because I was so focused only on the darkness. I want to train myself to look for the good, the beautiful, the hopeful, not as a way of looking away from what's bad, but at least making sure that I'm seeing them both on balance. And for me, it's never really like, it's not hard to face what's bad. I feel that every day. It takes a little discipline during hard seasons to train your eyes and your heart for the goodness. And I think that's a really worthwhile thing to do. Okay. You're going to have to explain that to me more. It's easier for you to see the, like to, to be okay with the bad, not to be okay with than it, but seeing to the good, s- to see it like in, Oh, to be aware of it. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in like the really dark seasons. You're just so aware of what's wrong and what's missing all the time. So, okay, I would say in my normal self, for most of my life, joy and laughter and celebration have come pretty naturally to me. And then I hit the season where it felt like everything in my life either died or got turned turned upside down. And I had to fight to find joy and to find delight and to find beauty and to find connection. And I'm not grateful for that. But I like the skills I learned along the way, and I will use them for the rest of my life. I know now how to put myself in the path of joy, how to go out and find things to be delighted about, how to hold the darkness and the beauty right at the same time. And those are skills I didn't necessarily have before. And again, I'm not thankful for the process, but I'm thankful for the for the skills and the perspective that I have for the rest of my life. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book is that you've learned now how to get through tough times and you you learn that skill and then you can just go back to it 
as tough times reappear. Do you find yourself, is it, is there like a muscle memory to this that you, you've, let's go back to culinary metaphors. Like you've learned how to season this season, this season. I didn't even, even mean, <laughs> see this. I'm out of my depth. I'm out of my depth here, but you've learned how to, I can't do food. I tried, I did my best and I failed <laughs> nevertheless, but you've learned skills to get through tough times. And now you can find yourself like going back and doing what worked for you in previous seasons of adversity. So this is the thing. I mean, what we're talking about essentially is resilience and resilience is, yeah. is a skill set. And it's a set of practices that you can use over and over again, and they get easier when you do them over time. I think we're all feeling that, right? Like we're simultaneously so like dismayed and done with what the last couple of years have been, right? Like it's just change upon change and chaos upon chaos and loss upon loss. And also right at the same time, when the next hard thing comes, we're going to move through our, uh, rainbow of outrage feelings much more quickly. And we're going to get down into how to make meaningful changes to get on the other side of this because we've learned it because we've had to. And so I, again, I don't love that we have all had to learn such tremendous resilience practices, but we have, and it means that we will have those skills to take into our futures. And that is a gift. And it's also a skill that you've now used to, uh, to like to serve other people. You talk in the book that you've found yourself kind of like as a priest for those who find faith as it used to be for them is no longer viable. And what does it feel like for you to have that be such a, like a normal part of the way that you present to the world as like you serve and your friends and you love people through that season? Oh, I think that's a huge honor. I mean, I'm, um, Okay, I never like it when people say this to me, but I think it's really true. Um, what we go through and what we fight through, and then the wisdom or the empathy or the compassion or the perspective that we're given through that experience is not just for us. It's something that we offer to the world with open hands, right? I hate it when people say that to me when I'm right in the middle of it, right? Like when you're at your lowest and people are like, this is going to make a great essay. You're like, guess what? Shut it. Um, <laughs> I, like I'm not there right now. Um, and I'd rather have yeah. an easy life than a great essay. Um, but you don't get the choice, yeah. right? So if you're going to go through genuinely horrible things, you might as well learn something. And then you might as well offer it to the people who might need it as desperately as you did when someone was offering it to you. And so I believe that one of the ways that we redeem the darkness in our own lives or the grief or loss in our own experiences is by offering them very freely to other people and saying, oh my gosh, if I can save you one percent of the heartache, or if I could even just walk alongside you, I can't change the amount of heartache, but I can tell you that I know what it feels like or that I know some of it. Um, I really believe in that kind of the idea of like composting on a spiritual level, right? Everything, mm. nothing is wasted. Everything is useful. Everything can find a new, can contribute to new life in some way. Um, so yeah. all that to say, um, I love it when people call me and say, I secretly think I might not be a Christian anymore. I'm like, cool, hold the phone. I think probably you are settle in. This is going to be a long conversation. Let's talk about it. Um, and like, I'm kind of old at this point. And so a lot of stuff doesn't scare me the way it would if someone was calling me and telling me that when I was like 22, right? Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of people um, walk away from their faith. 
I've seen also a lot of people rebuild their faith into something much more beautiful, much more durable, much more honest, much more generative than that previous thing that they were given or that they were kind of dragging along with them. And so I just really believe in the process of kind of mining for the best parts of a meaningful religious experience and being very free to walk away from the rest of it. I think that's a wonderful process. Hmm. Uh, the only thing I don't like about what you just said is when you refer to yourself as old, because <laughs> I'm only maybe like two or three behind you, and I don't want to be lumped into that. So uh, feel free to identify yourself as old, but I do not accept that. I will refer uh, to you as the, the younger generation for the rest of this podcast, yes, if that makes the, you feel better. The younger generation. I'm like a much younger cousin, much I'll younger. Um, you, you, you say in the book that part of this season for you has been, in some ways, finding your new self and... I imagine that you are not the only person who finds themselves in a season in which they're having to rediscover who they are. And so let's say that um, you function in your priestly capacity as the priest for those whose faith isn't as viable as it used to be in the same way it was. And I'm trying to figure out my, like finding my new self. What are you telling me to do? Like, what are the steps I should be doing? What, what would you recommend for me on this process? Um, the first thing I would say, and maybe this isn't right for everyone, but it's what has been always right for me is read like crazy. Um, a lot of times, some of what's happening, uh, when we feel like, uh, the faith experience we've had up to a certain point, some of what we're feeling, and it stops working for all sorts of different reasons. Some of what we're feeling is a sense of sort of spiritual loneliness, like, the people around me are all feeling something that I don't feel. And it makes me feel tremendously lonely. Like, I think you picture that image of like everyone singing the same song in church and it feels like a lie to me, like the profound loneliness of that. Yes. Yeah. And what I have found throughout my life is um, it's not that no one has ever felt the way you feel. It's number one, that we're not all talking about it very well in church, but number two, maybe just, it's not the people in your church or your town or your state or your country the voices who have ushered me through my greatest faith transitions have been like writers who lived on the other side of the world who've been dead for a hundred years, right? Um, they don't have to be sitting next to you in order to pastor you and guide you through a really important passage along your own journey. And so read like crazy and find the poets and the mystics and the prophets and the storytellers and they're out there and they will keep you company even when the people in your small group or church or town can't for whatever reason. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing would be um, invite people into it as much as they're able to join you in it. A lot of times we think we have to walk through this lo um, alone because we are lonely in it, but we're perpetuating our own loneliness by not being direct with the people around us. So I think, to, and they won't all go great. You know, every once in a while you'll run into someone who's like, but this is when Jesus carries you. And you're like, that doesn't help. Um, then don't talk about it with that person, but try it with another person. A lot of us have a lot of the same questions and to kind of give them a little air, sometimes take some of the sting out of the enormity of those questions. So I would say read like crazy and don't try to do it alone. Hmm. I think that's a good point. It seems that it's very easy, and maybe it's human nature, for us to think that our part of the world is the entire world. And if my part of the world and my part of church and my part of faith has this view, maybe it's kind of restrictive and maybe it's small and maybe it says, oh, if you're deconstructing, you're like, you have 
terrible person, blah, 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 that we think that's the entire witness of the community. And it's just like, that's, that's your community. Like there's, there's more parts of it that you need to open your eyes to see. So I think that's, that's great advice. Don't do this alone. That, that's really helpful. Uh, one of the things that you said years ago that was really helpful to me, and I feel like I've told the story enough times that it's not kind of like you, what you said and then kind of what I said together, and now I don't know even what is true right now. It's kind of like this hybrid of your your actual experience and then like what I want your experience to be. Okay. Um, so maybe you can correct me at this point. But I, I've used this, and like I'm not saying the only reason I want to talk to you is this, but it definitely was helpful. Um, as the father of daughters, and I am a pastor, like I'm always looking for pastor's daughters who seem to have like turned out well and like to be well adjusted. And so I'm like, all right, so this is what you did. Tell me like, okay, give me some, some things to work on. Um, when you were in maybe high school, you found yourself somewhat disconnected from church and the suggestion and the like the counsel of your parents was as long as you stay connected to a person, an older mentor, then even if like being in youth group isn't what you're going to do, like we're okay as long as you stay connected to this one person and they didn't force you, they didn't push you. Is that right? Totally. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that... Um I'm really, when I look back on that, especially the, now that I'm a parent, I realize kind of the, the faith and the restraint that they demonstrated in that moment. Like they really could have controlled, made rules, forced me to show up at things, tried to manage a bunch. They played it so cool. And I really give them a lot of credit for that. Um, I'm really grateful for that. And I was the kind of kid who needed a little bit of freedom as opposed to had they clamped down a little bit, I would have handled it really poorly. Um, So I'm really, I love the way that they kind of let me chart my own course with a good mentor. You know, it wasn't like I was off in the wilderness by myself. I love the space that they gave me, though. I think it made a huge difference in my life. Well, in, in some ways, it sounds like it made a pretty substantial difference because in some ways you're kind of giving that same advice now as in your priestly role as those who find faith less than viable as they understood it. Because um, it's just like it kind of sounds like the same advice. Like, OK, there's space out there for you, but stay connected to someone. Well, and, you know, right at that same time, and I write about this toward the very end of the book, when I was in high school going through that experience, my mom was going through a major full on deconstruction. She was a pastor's wife of a large, very public church, and she was like, this doesn't work for me anymore, and I need the space to figure that out. And so I watched her, like, like people use the word just deconstruction like for, like, almost anything right now, you know? She went through, like, a tear it all down, build it back up over the course of several years, traveled extensively, read, learned, all of it. And I watched her do it, and in my family, that wasn't framed as a failing it was framed as an act of bravery and, and yeah. like a way of tending to something that you really love. Like if, I mean, if you think about it in terms of a relationship, which is what we believe about our faith experience, when you watch, when you watch somebody fight for their marriage, like it wasn't working and we're willing to learn any new thing, a new skill set or, or a new way of being together, a new way of thinking about who we are together, you respect that work that they do. And I think we should apply that same like respect and esteem to people who are willing to go through like deep dive deconstruction. My mom was brave enough to re-navigate the most important relationship in her life. And she did it while I was in high school. And so I think that gave me sort of a lifelong respect for it as opposed to fear of it. Yeah. Well, that's a, a trust in the Paschal mystery that there are things and there are parts of your journey in which there's going to be death and there's going to be parts of resurrection and new life. And to understand like that's the game we're all playing, all of a sudden 
takes off the pressure to never experience that. But you just go, okay, this is part of the Christian rhythm of death, burial, and resurrection. It's going to happen for me. It happened to Jesus. That's it's the way it goes. Absolutely, I think that's exactly right. And I think our um, it would be so much healthier for our church cultures if we sort of built that expect- expectation and rhythm into the way we talk about our faith journeys, as opposed to like it's just supposed to get stronger and stronger and stronger all the time forever. I think those natural waves are a part of it and they're a really good part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's part of every relationship. And so it's not a surprise that it'd be part of your relationship with faith and in the divine. And yeah, it makes, makes perfect sense. Okay. So the book is titled, I guess I haven't learned that yet. You turned in the last, uh, drafted a couple of weeks ago to your, to your editors. Like, is that right? Uh, I turned it in. in so you've been September. writing on the in February. Okay. I, I figured like you would have finished this like nine months ago and it's just now coming to press, but you like, this is like down to the wire that you, you got your hands on it. Right. Um, I, I think it was in the fall that I turned it in officially. Um, and okay. so, and that, yeah, but it's a little bit of a quick turnaround because I was so desperately behind on it. Like I, it, this just, this one okay. just took me forever. So, um, okay. So yeah, so my, my question was going to be then like, if, if this was like back in the fall that you finished it, like, has there something new that you would have added to it? But it sounds like you've actually had the ability to stay pretty close on this one all the way to the very end. Well, you know, I mean, I would say, I don't know if you felt this in writing projects. The second I turn it in, I think of 1 million things I should have written and I think yeah. a million things I would change. And I, I would never, ever actually finish a book unless they like just pried it out of my hands and sent it to print at a certain point. I'm never happy with it. I'm never finished. I never think it's all the way done. They just at a certain point are like, something's going to print today. What is it? And that's how I know I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, uh, that sounds about right. It's, it never feels like it's finished, but it can be on, on schedule. It's on schedule. Like, yeah, there's something there, but could it be better? Yeah. Like I always, yeah, I always how, think it could be better. How long your first book came out? How long ago? 15 years ago. That like I have, I think my first book came out five years ago, and I'm like already embarrassed of it. I'm like, oh man, why oh, did yeah. I say that? Like, there's a better way to say that. I wish I could go back and like remix it. Absolutely, and you know, part of being a creative person is um, like really trusting that the work stands beyond you and separate from you, and you can't go back and change it. And of course, it's horrible to go back and read it, but you just trust, like. That girl who wrote that book was doing her best at the time, and it helped a certain amount of people, and hopefully this one will too, and the next one, I'll look back at this one and be like, what garbage, and that's just part of the process. Yep, yep. Well, go full circle to say in the beginning, I think us, your readers, expect like vulnerability, and as I was curious as how you're going to write this one uh, in light of all that's gone on, like I felt like you same you you kept honest to that same tone that we've like grown to appreciate. So appreciate the vulnerability. Thanks for writing this book, and um, like well done. Oh, thank you. That really means a lot. Thank you.